And now, if you would, I would invite you to turn to the book of Esther. This evening, we're going to look at Esther chapter 7. It's a short text, which hopefully we'll be able to treat in sufficient detail and still get to dinner. So if you would, though, let's get the blood pumping a little bit. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. Give, the, give attention to the reading of the very Word of the living God. It is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. Esther, chapter 7. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther asked, <coughs> Excuse me. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my request, for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless this, your word, to our hearts and our minds, that you would use it to convict us of our sin, to encourage us on to love and good deeds. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We've been looking through the book of Esther together, and as you've noticed, one of the things that's very obvious about the book of Esther is that God's name does not appear in it. And yet at the same time, we've seen God acting all throughout the book. And Esther is actually a wonderful book for thinking about the way God acts and the way we act as well. 
and how this works together under what seems at times a mystery of the Scriptures. That God is sovereign and that we are called to faithful action. And this chapter is no different. It is a, it is a short vignette, but yet we will see the actions of God's people and others interacting and arising from the sovereign acts of God. And so as I was thinking about this passage this week, I thought of a famous line from a Shakespearean play where a character says, all the world's a stage and we are merely players. And so what I'd like us to look at are those two things. First, all the world's a stage, but then secondly, are we merely players? How does this work with we living our lives in the midst of knowing that God is sovereign? Well, let's look first at the stage of the world that is laid out before us in the actions that happen here in chapter 7. The first thing that we see is Esther's request to the king. Now, I don't want you to forget the context in which this is happening. She is about to reveal a secret. Perhaps you've done that at some time in your life. You've had to reveal something that you've kept very close to the vest, maybe to a loved one or a spouse or your child or your parents. And with that comes fear. Fear of what will happen when that's out. Because there's a reason why we keep secrets. We keep them to protect ourselves because we don't want to be hurt. We don't want to give others an opportunity to cause us difficulty and pain. And if we remember that now for five years, Esther has kept the secret that she is a Jew. No one knows that she is of the Jewish people. Now, you need to think about this for a minute. This is not a secret that you love chocolate cupcakes. And every once in a while, you go into the pantry and you peel one off and you eat it and no one knows any better. This is a secret that would have required a change of Esther's entire life. As one commentator puts it, she had to break every law in the Pentateuch in order to not be seen as a Jew. She had to eat food that was forbidden, wear clothing that was forbidden, marry a man that was forbidden, have relationships that were forbidden. Everything that was in the law of Moses, she had to break in order to keep this secret. And... It even could get to the point, if you think about this, that she could not once ever have prayed in public or spoken of the Lord in public, or she would be known. Now, if we think about this also in the context of Mordecai, who is known for being a Jew, as a matter of fact, we've seen over and over again, he's called Mordecai the Jew. That's how the Jewish people have come under this edict, the fact that Mordecai was so well known to be a Jew that Haman decided to attack his entire people. So this is the context in which which Esther operates. And she comes to approach the king. Now remember, too, who this king is. He is a very unstable individual. We've already seen on several occasions the king basically do what someone has manipulated him to do. He passed this edict of genocide because Haman bribed him and flattered him. He got rid of his first wife because he was afraid that he'd be embarrassed in front of his friends. He's not exactly the rock of Gibraltar. He's also the one that has passed the law 
that Esther is trying to get changed. Now, that's very difficult. If nothing else, we know that the king doesn't want to lose face. And if we just think about the way that even our own politicians act, they try and do things in such a fashion so that they save face, so that there's political value in their actions. It wouldn't be very different for the king here. You also will remember that he has an interest in the death of the Jews. Remember, more than one half of the tax tax revenue for the empire for the year is the bribe he's about to receive for the death of all the Jews. So, if we think about it again, it'd be very difficult to get a congressman to vote against a law that someone promised to give several trillion dollars. It's not something you do easily. It's a large amount of money. And what does Esther have on her side? Well, we know she has good looks because the king fancied her. But we also know from looking back at chapter 6 that she has brains, that she's thinking behind the scenes, that she's careful, that she's humble, that she's subtle, and she's trying to use all the wisdom that God has given to her in approaching the king. And so she begins with a speech that seems like ordinary oriental words. She says, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king. This is typical for a monarch of this region of this time. You don't approach them boldly out with a request. You have to flatter them a bit. You have to show that they're more important than you are. You have to show that they're being magnanimous and even listening to you. And so she does this. But there's actually a purpose behind this flattery that we'll see in a minute. And so the king has asked her to to give her wish and her request. And the way he has phrased this rhetorically, they're one and the same. He says, tell me what you want. Really, tell me what you're requesting of me. It's one request she gets. She does not get a twofer here. This is not a double header. And so she realizes this, and in her answer, she uses wisdom in answering. She says, let me tell you what my wish is. Let me tell you what my request is. My wish is for my life, and my request is for the life of my people. So by by answering in this fashion, she has not only let her secret out of the closet, but she has publicly identified with the people who are under the sentence of death. She has come boldly from the point where she was afraid to even say she was a Jew to the point where she knows if her request is not granted, she will face death. And she's doing it voluntarily. She is linking her fate with that of the Jews. She does something a little bit interesting, though. She doesn't mention the name of the people. This may be surprising to us until we flip back in our Bibles and find out that in chapter 3, neither did Haman. Haman said there was a certain people that were causing all kinds of problems. And so she holds this information back for maximum effect. We will see. Esther is a good example of being wise as a serpent in God's service. There is no reason for Christians to try and be simplistic or simple-minded. We are to be without uh, guile, without manipulation. 
But wisdom is still something that is called for here. And then she begins to work the king. You know this. You've seen your kids do this to you. They work an angle here. And notice how she phrases it. She says, well, you see, there is this, there is this edict out here. There's something that's happened. We have been sold, I and my people, to be annihilated. She doesn't say, Haman sold us. She doesn't say, King, you signed the decree. She puts it in the passive voice. She's holding back a key piece of information. She wants to work up the king's anger at what is happening here before he needs to decide what's more valuable to him, his favorite queen or his prime minister. So she's holding back that piece of information. And she appeals to the king in a fashion in which he would understand. Now, sometimes we think this is ungodly, to appeal to the world using language, terminology that they would understand to get their attention. We might think, well, if Esther really wants to be a biblical believer in the Lord, she should walk right up to the king and say, King, you can't have this edict of genocide. It's against God's law, it's immoral, it's wrong, and it's harmful. There's only one problem with that. The king cares so little about it. Not only did he sign the decree, he's forgotten about it. That's how high it registers on his radar. Not at all. You know, in Persia, the king's word is law, and it doesn't matter what happens to anyone. So she doesn't take that route because there really is no way for her to appeal there. Instead, she appeals to the cost it would be to the king. She says, king, my life is forfeit. That's an attack upon you, not me. Because after all, if this was just slavery, I'd be quiet. But now this edict is trying to take something from you that you desire, that you appreciate, that is valuable to you. And you can almost see the king's face getting redder and redder and redder. And there's irony in the way she says this. She says, we have been sold to be slaves. When in reality, that's exactly what she is now. (laughs) She is a slave. She is a female slave to the king. And so she raises this issue to the king in a fashion in which he would understand. And then the next thing we see is the king's response. His response is one of furious language. This is one of these occasions where it's really helpful to know the original language. Not because there's some sort of secret hidden meaning, but because you can get the punctuated, staccato anger in the way the words are used. If you could imagine, for example, when you have, you're speaking with someone, or perhaps this has happened to you, when you get so angry that you can't even finish your own sentence. You know those bursts of half sentences that come out? That's what's happening here to the king. He's furious. He says, who is this? He doesn't use good grammar. And then she responds using better grammar, but still with language that is filled with fury and with anger. You could almost imagine her pointing, Nathan-like, that's the man right there. And then, 
as white as, as red as the king's face is, you can imagine Haman's face becomes white as a sheet. Because you do not want to be in the presence of the king of Persia when he is angry at you. You could pretty much say that the life expectancy there is somewhere between 2 and 24 hours. So she puts this in front of the king. There's emotion in the room. And she has put this all on a course for maximum effect. She does not accuse the king at all. There's no hope of that. And she makes Haman's action to be an attack on the king. And so then the king does something that may seem to us a bit odd. He goes for a stroll in the garden. And we may say to ourselves, well, maybe he's trying to cool off. Maybe you've done that. You've been in an argument with a spouse, and rather than let it keep heating up, you just leave the room. Come back in 15 minutes. Let me cool off. But you see, the king doesn't want or need to cool off here. Haman knows he's already determined to do him harm. So why would the king leave the presence of Haman and Esther? Well, it's because the king may be able to be manipulated, but he's no dummy. He knows now he's faced with a problem in which in order to get himself out of it, he's got to take an action that reflects on him. He's got to undo a law that he passed with his own signet ring on the wax. And you can just imagine, he's outside pacing. What do I do now? I'm not going to... I'm not going to let him kill the queen, but I can't change the law. Why did I ever listen to Haman? How am I going to fix this? What am I doing? And he's getting angrier and more frustrated because he doesn't know what to do. But then, in God's providence, there is an interesting turn of events. Look with me at verse 8. The king returns from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, and Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king immediately, inwardly says, Aha! Why are you attacking the queen? Kill him! He's attacking the queen! And before Haman can even answer, his face is covered up. And the king has no problem at all substituting one offense for another. Haman has solved his problem for him. Haman's fate has been sealed by his own actions. You see, because Haman knew how unstable the king was. He knew that he had manipulated the king. He knew that Esther had manipulated the king. And now he knew he was in trouble. And his only hope out was to get Esther to manipulate him again and to get Haman off the hook. And so he pleads with Esther. And he does this, and in God's providence, at that very moment, the king walks in. Haman had violated the protocol of a harem. You see, you were not permitted at any time to be with the king's wives outside of his presence. And even if you were in his presence, you could not be closer than seven feet. Haman's actions here are so unthinkable that the Jewish commentary on Esther substitutes a sentence. It says that what happened was Haman was pleading with Esther... And the angel Gabriel came up behind him and gave him a shove and pushed him into Esther. That's how unthinkable his action is. That's how providential his action is. Now, I want you to also think of the irony here. Don't let it be lost on you. Mordecai had failed to fall down before 
Haman that started this whole process. And now Haman physically falls down before a Jewess, Esther. Now Haman is pleading for his life, but he's pleading with someone that he has condemned to death unwittingly. And what's about to happen here is he's about to fall from his position as far as you possibly can. The irony should not be lost on you that in the midst of all of these actions, of all of these people, it's what God desires to happen that occurs. And then there's a little bit of further irony that this eunuch walks in. And he says, and you can almost imagine the smirk on his face. He says, well, you know, there's that gallows over there. Oh, yeah, Haman built it. And you know why he built it? He built it to kill the guy. You know, the guy that saved your life. Now you can imagine the king's anger is threefold. You mean this man who attacked the queen and did this edict? He's in cahoots with those assassins? Take his head off right now and stick him on the gallows. Now, gallows were not exactly fun things in Persia. When I say gallows, you're thinking of cowboy times and a noose and a horse and you smack the horse. But a gallows, actually, in Persia, was a gigantic pole or stick with a point on it. And you didn't, when you hung someone from it, you killed them and stuck them on the stick 75 feet up in the air so that everyone would see that they had were cursed, that they had come on the wrong side of the king. And so the eunuch just happens to walk in, just happens to remember, and just happens to make this comment. And so we see Haman has come now completely turned about. He has lost everything, and he's about to be, as the saying goes, hoist on his own petard. So these are the players that are out there. But the question is, are we merely players? If we think about this, we think about the importance of God's sovereignty. You'll remember that it was chapter 6 that was the turning point in this story. Up until chapter 6, the Jews' fortunes were steadily going down. After chapter 6, they're going up. Then if you think to yourself, as you skim chapter 6, who doesn't show up at all in chapter 6? Not once. Esther. Mordecai only shows up as a sidelight. He's barely there at all. And Esther's not there in the least. The only thing that is happening there is the invisible hand of God. Those insignificant events. It may remind you of a psalm. Psalm 127, verse 1, where it says, Unless the Lord build the house, they who build labor in vain. You see, God is here working behind the scenes. God is in control. This is something for us to remember, especially in the midst of fearful times, that God is always there, in control, watching for His people, keeping His promises, even in events that are insignificant. God's sovereignty is critical to understanding not only the scriptures, but our own lives. But then the question might come up about our own actions. Does that mean that what we do is useless? I mean, God's in control. His invisible hand is there. All of these little events. Well, let's think back to that same verse. 
unless the Lord builds the house, they who what? Build, labor in vain. The Lord builds the house, but what do the builders do? They work. They labor. God builds the house through them. God uses their faithful actions to build the house. He must be in it, but they must also act. And so it shouldn't be lost on you that that chapter 6, which has Esther nowhere to be seen and Mordecai in a side walk-on roll, is bracketed by chapters 5 and 7, in which Esther is front and center in all of her actions to be obedient to the Word of God. She is very much at the forefront. You see, God is working through the actions of His people. Now, what does this mean? Take, for example, evangelism. We all know that evangelism is the sovereignty of God. That unless God turns a heart, unless God regenerates a person, there is no hope of them coming to faith in Christ. It is God who must work on the heart. And yet, God does that through His people, bringing the Word to them, praying for them, witnessing to them, knocking on doors, pounding the pavement, writing letters. We must act. We do so as the instruments of God, as the vehicle that God uses to bring about His will. You see, there is a biblical balance of action. There is action grounded in the sovereignty of God. And that frees us, whether it is to witness to others, whether to work or labor in the kingdom. We can work and labor with all our strength, knowing that the result is in God's hands. That He just desires that we act faithfully in obedience to His Word. There's another encouragement here in Esther. Because God does this even when we mess up horribly. Do you remember Esther? The one who wouldn't admit she was a Jew? Who married a pagan king? Who was afraid to talk to the king? Who was afraid to save her people? God uses her to bring about His will. So if you feel here today that you're not worthy to serve God, that God doesn't want your service, that He's not interested in your help, that you have sinned too much, or you don't have enough faith, you need to know that God uses instruments just like that to do mighty things, just like Esther. The last thing that we see here is the hope that is found in God's covenant. Why do we have these kinds of hope in our actions? It is because we know that God is faithful. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, he said, If we are faithless, He is faithful. He cannot deny Himself. The certainty of these actions are not because of our might, our wisdom, or our strength. It's because of the promise of God. You see, all of this happened not because Esther was in the right place at the right time, or she had a pretty face, or Mordecai had some wisdom to share. All of this happened because God laid down a promise in Genesis 12, in which He said, if you curse my people, you will be cursed. That's why Haman ends up on a stick. Not because he got a foul of King Ahasuerus or Mordecai. Or Esther. He decided to take on the true and living God. 
And God always wins. God always keeps His promise. But we need to remember that in the midst of that, we have to have patience. Because God doesn't always bring about His accomplishments in our timing, in our way, or without cost. Oftentimes, there is indeed a cost. We may not know how the Lord is going to bring it about. But what we do know is that the promise is sure. So let me conclude here by giving you just three very quick examples of how you will see this in your own life. The first is something we saw this morning. Baptism. You see, baptism is more than just a promise to do your best to raise a child. Baptism is a sign that God has committed Himself to His people and their children. That God is involved in your life as parents. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we can be idle. Just because we have a promise of baptism, we let it roll and God will take care of it. No. Because we have that promise, we act with greater vigor. We use every opportunity to put Jesus in front of our children. We pray with them. We read them the scriptures. We teach them the doctrines of our religion. We act as forcefully as we can because of the promise of God. We also see that even in our own sanctification as we struggle with sin. We have God's promise that He will conform us to the image of Christ. But because we have that promise, we don't sit on our laurels and expect sanctification to drop down from heaven. No. We work. We pray. We read the Scriptures. We seek counsel. We do everything we can for the work of God. The last thing that we see is another thing we saw tonight. That is, God has promised to build His church that the gates of hell will not stand against it. But the way in which He does that is not theoretically. He does it through real flesh and blood. He gives His church officers to lead them against the gates of hell. And it is you and I that will charge those gates. It is you and I that through Christ Jesus will have the victory. God's sovereignty empowers us to act. It gives us assurance. It gives us confidence. It gives us hope. That's why the sovereignty of God is so important day in and day out to His people. Let us pray.